Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. I really appreciate the youth study because we're dealing with fundamental concepts and, and getting right down to the building blocks of true doctrine and false doctrine. And that exchange that Satan had with Eve, where he challenged God's word and basically said to her, you, you, the opposite of what God said, you will not die. Let, let's begin the study today in Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14. And verse 12 gives us some insight into what happened before Adam and Eve were created. And in Isaiah 14 and verse 12, the question is asked, How have you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? So for some reason, Lucifer was in heaven, and he fell from heaven, son of the morning. How is it that you are cut down to the ground? So now we find him on earth, which did weaken the nations. Why? Here's the answer. Because you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne. So he he had a throne and he wanted to exalt this throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I, I, will be like the Most High. So we see this great being striving to overtake God and position himself in place of God as the Most High. That he was on earth, but he wasn't satisfied with earth. He wanted heaven. And then we saw through the youth study with Sister Lisa that he then challenges Adam and Eve with this notion that they are mortal, that they would die. He says, no, you won't die. You'll be immortal. And and we find this concept then of the afterlife. What happens when we die? What happens after we die? And and there are explanations for this in all nations. And whether it's going to heaven, reincarnation, uh, evolution, there's some explanation for what happens after death. I think everybody's heard the term nirvana. Nirvana is a term, this is according to Wikipedia, nirvana is a term found in the text of all major Indian religions including Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism, Sikhism. It refers to the profound peace of mind that is acquired with the liberation or release from a state of suffering after respective spiritual practice. So there's this liberation that's available, according to the Hindu or the Indian texts, that after we die, if we live appropriately, we're released from this body of suffering. Here also in Wikipedia, 
It says in eschatological, eschatological context, that is, again, at the end of time, paradise is imagined as an abode of the virtuous dead. In Christian and Islamic understanding, heaven is a paradisical relief. So it's the same thing. So according to Christians and, and, and Muslims, when we die, we're released and we go to paradise, and we're relieved from this life on earth. In old Egyptian beliefs, the other world is Aru. It is the reed fields of ideal hunting and fishing grounds. And so if you see the reliefs that in, in museums, you'll see Pharaoh when he's dead, he's out fishing in paradise. Because if he lives well, he's rewarded with this paradise concept. For Celts, or sorry, for the Celts, it was the fortunate Isle of Magmel. For the classical Greeks, the Elysian Fields was a paradisical land of plenty where the heroic and righteous dead hope to spend eternity. And it goes on and on and on with the Zoroastrians. Everybody has this concept of some sort of paradise that we are released into upon death. In addition to our life after death, there's also these concepts around God. And here it says, again, in uh, Wikipedia regarding the Trinity, according to this central mystery of most Christian faiths, there is only one God in three persons. While distinct from one another in their relations of origin and in their relations with one another, they are stated to be one in all else, co-equal, co-eternal, consubstantial, and each is God whole and entire. I, I don't know what that means, so if you, if you feel a bit confused, I do too. So according to Christianity, God is one, but he's three, but he's one, and it's a mystery, and we can't really understand it, we just have to accept it. According to Islam, God is also one, but he's one, one, not three and one, just one. And you heard the imam when we were in the debate talking about the God concept, and God is an essence, and God is one, and sounding very much like a Greek philosopher. And that's not by accident. And so what I want us to understand today is that these concepts of God and the concepts of life after death are fundamentally flawed, and they are the opposite of what the Bible teaches. And if, like the youth study, if we go back to basics, we will not fall into the trap of these flawed beliefs. And it's easy, because they're, they're everywhere, it's easy for them to seep in, and we don't even realize. And so again, if we go to building, fundamental building blocks, we can catch it before it seeps in. So let's explore what the Bible says, both about God and about the earth. Because we saw Satan wanted to leave the earth, and he wanted to go to heaven. And he takes that concept and implants it in man. So there's no faith, no religion that rejoices in the earth. All of them despise the earth. And they want some spiritual paradise. And there's no religion that makes God accessible. All of these false religions... God is inaccessible. He, he, is, he is inaccessible to man. 
He is so profound and he's so great that it's really impossible for man to connect with God. So these are the two fundamental flaws of all false religions. That they despise the earth and seek a spiritual heaven. And they make God inaccessible. Whether he's a trinity or he's the one or whatever it is, he's inaccessible. He's so other and mysterious that man cannot access him. What does the Bible actually say? First, we, 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 I think we are very clear here that all civilizations are rooted in Nimrod. So the Nimrod systems of worship and the false religion of Nimrod and Semiramis and Tammuz, that's everywhere. And that's sort of the authority for the political control that the different nations have set up over man. But in addition to that Nimrod philosophy being everywhere, in addition to that, so, so, so Nimrod is the root. It's the, it's the underpinning of all civilization. In addition to that underpinning, we have Greek philosophy. And Greek, Greek philosophy is the blanket that covers all civilizations. So we have all civilizations rooted in Nimrod and then covered with Greek philosophy. And this is a double whammy. This, this is where all false religions are informed by the fundamental religion of Nimrod and Greek philosophy. And that Greek philosophy, fundamentally it goes back to a gentleman by the name of Pythagoras. And I think we've all heard of the Pythagorean theorem. I think if you're in school, you've heard of the Pythagorean theorem, which they attribute to Pythagoras because he was a mathematician. He was a philosopher. He was a musician. He was a mathematician. But he actually learned that from Egypt. And of course, that understanding of the triangles and how to calculate that, they needed that understanding to build the pyramids. But they got it from Babylon, who needed it to build this uh, tower that they were building for Nimrod. So the Pythagorean theorem didn't begin with Pythagoras. But what's fascinating about Pythagoras and really the ancient Greeks is everybody all over the world, it was the pre-modern world, and everybody had the religion of Nimrod in some way, shape, or form, and the pantheon of gods of Nimrod. The Greeks had it as well, with Zeus and all the gods under Zeus. And it was these ancient Greeks that said, this doesn't make sense. This can't be true. And they started to think very deeply about what life is and, and what is the meaning of life and who is God. And they started to philosophize. So Pythagoras is, is credited as being the first philosopher. And then from him, there was a number of great philosophers, culminating really in Socrates. And Socrates is really the great one. And then he had a student called Plato. Socrates didn't write anything down. He just taught, asked questions, and was, had a profound effect on the Greek mind. Plato wrote everything down. And Plato started a number of schools. So all the philosophers after Plato basically learned from Plato. They learned about Socrates and his teachings from Plato. And then um, Plato had a student called Aristotle. And Aristotle had a student called Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great was so blown away by the teachings, by, by Greek philosophy and the understanding that the Greeks had of life, that he determined to spread it all over the world. 
And he conquered basically the whole known world to bring Greek philosophy to the world. So this is how the world starts with this pre-modern notion of Nimrod religion, but then covers it with Greek philosophy. Now, a few hundred years later, a great philosopher named Plotinus came on the scene. And he was what's called a Neoplatonist, a modern Platonist. So he took Plato's teachings and brought them to Christianity. So this is now how Greek philosophy entered into Christianity. And one of his great teachings, which goes back to Pythagoras, all the way back, Pythagoras was a mathematician. And he came to the conclusion that all life can be explained through numbers. And that of all the numbers, the most important number was the number one. And that God is the number one. That was Pythagoras' contribution. That all, this, all these gods, Zeus and all that, that it was false. That the number one is God. Plotinus, so this cascades all the way down to Plotinus. And this is what he teaches in the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy which is a peer-reviewed academic resource, which means unlike Wikipedia, so Wikipedia, anybody can edit Wikipedia. When it's peer-reviewed, only academics can edit this. And they teach about Plotinus. He makes it clear, this is Plotinus, that no words can do justice to the power of the one. And the one is capitalized. This is Pythagorean theory, theory here. No words can do justice to the power of the one. Even the name, the one, is inadequate. For naming already implies discursive knowledge. That means knowledge through analysis. And since discursive knowledge divides or separates its objects in order to make them intelligible, the one cannot be known through the processes of discursive reasoning. Knowledge of the one is achieved through the experience of its power, its dunamis, and its nature. And he goes on and on. So when you hear Muslims, when you see ISIS saying, you know, Allah is one, it goes all the way back to Plotinus. Because Plotinus infiltrated Christianity, and that's what led to Gnosticism. Because God is one and cannot be divided, they couldn't accept that Jesus Christ came to earth and that Jesus Christ was God. And that Jesus Christ died on the cross. They couldn't accept this. When the Greek philosophers came into Christianity, this was a problem. And so that's what led to Gnosticism and a lot of heresy. And they tried to stamp this out. And so the heretical Christians had to flee. And most of them, a lot of them, went into Arabia. And this is why the Koran never talks about Christians. It talks about the Nasara. The Nasara were Gnostics, and they were informed by Plotinus, and they couldn't accept that Jesus Christ was God. That's why they call him Isa. That's why they taught that he was switched at the cross. And all of these teachings ended up in Islam, because Muhammad learned Christianity from Khadija, from Warqa ibn Nafil, and from his uh, slave Zaid. And these were all Nasara. They were not Christians. They were Gnostic heretics. And they, they held to this concept of the one. So this is, it's not just in Islam, it's in Christianity, it's everywhere. Now, what we see, particularly with Christianity and Islam, is this combination of Nimrod 
religion and Greek philosophy combined. So we have pre-modernism. So the Trinity is Nimrod religion. The explanation of it, that God is one but he's three, this is Greek philosophy. You see the same thing in, in Islam where they have this conviction of the moon god, but they can now explain it philosophically, that God is one. And you see, particularly with Christianity and Islam, but it's everywhere. What does now, and, and because of the, this notion, again, there's a despising of the earth. And there's a desire to leave the earth and to be in a spiritual paradise. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Let's look at God's perspective of matter. This is matter. The earth is matter. How does God see matter? Because all these false religions have a problem with it. Look at Genesis 1. Again, this is uh, covered in the youth study today. But let's look at it again. Genesis 1 and verse 31. So you had talked about the different um, parts of creation. And then when God created everything, what did the true God think of it? So he's just finished creating all life on earth, except for man. He hadn't created man yet. But what did he think of it? Verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. It was good. Everything on the earth was good. Everything that the animals were doing, it was good. And the evening and the morning were the, were the sixth day. And a lot of people, for example, have problem with sexuality. But all of these animals were created to reproduce. They were sexual animals. And God looked at it and said, it's very good. So when you see in religion this despising of sexuality, it's not coming from God. And often it's, it's coupled with intense hypocrisy. Because these same people who are being so rigid, we see what they're doing behind closed doors. It's horrible. Instead of having this healthy embracing of what God has created. In chapter 2 and verse 7, This is what God thinks of the earth. So he's created everything he says is very good. And now in verse 7, this tells us what God thinks of the earth. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. I mean, God, as you said today in the youth study, he made man in his own image and likeness. So God took the dust of the earth and formed a replica, a mirror image of himself. I think that gives us an indication of what the creator thinks of earth. That he's happy to create a being that looks just like him out of the very dust of the earth that Lucifer rejected. The earth wasn't good enough for Lucifer. He wanted heaven. And God condescends down to the earth and says, you don't understand. This is special. What I've created here is special. And I'll show you how special it is. I'll make a copy of myself. 
out of it. Come now to chapter 3. To see again God's perspective on the earth. How does God see the earth? And this is where, again, these, these um, religions that are informed and influenced by Greek philosophy, which believes that matter is evil. Matter is evil. Good is spiritual. And that's why when we die, we have to leave the matter and go into the spiritual world, because matter is evil. This, this comes from uh, all the way back to uh, Pythagoras and all the way through the Greek philosophers. Look now in Genesis 3 and verse 8. They, Adam and Eve, heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. So, so we shouldn't read over this. The creator, in creating everything on the earth, said, behold, it is very good. Then he makes an image of himself out of it, and then he comes into the earth. He's happy to participate in his creation. So, so this Greek notion that matter is evil and only spirit is good, the creator doesn't share this. He doesn't share it. He creates matter, and then he's happy to participate in it. And and his presence was in the garden with Adam and Eve. Look now at chapter 18 of Genesis. Chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord appeared unto Abraham in the plains of Mamre. And he sat in the door of the tent, that's Abraham, in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked. And lo, three men stood by him. So one of these men is God and two angels. And so again, we see this God of the universe, the creator, happy to come into his creation. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. He he knew who this was. He bowed himself toward the ground and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, pass not away, I pray you, from your servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort you your hearts. After that, you shall pass on. For therefore are you come to your servant. And they said, So do, as you have said. And Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes upon the hearth. And I think that's sort of the the best way for God to be a dinner guest, is is by surprise. Because if if he gave us notice... I'm, I'm, I'm going to come and have a meal with you. We'd be freaking out. Like, what, what, do we, what do we serve? God is coming. But he came. And, and, and Sarah prepared a meal. 
And Abraham ran unto the herd and fetched a calf tender and good and gave it to, to a young man, and he hasted to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed, and he set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. This is how God perceives his creation. He's happy to come into it and to participate in it and to have a meal with his friend Abraham. This, this is how God thinks about his creation. Look at chapter 28. Chapter 28. Again, we're exploring the concept here. Is God so great and so high that he's too great to engage with man. And we're seeing that that is actually a satanic concept. Satan's opinion of himself is that he's so great and he's so high. He despises man. But the creator loves man, loves his creation, is happy to come into the creation and participate. Genesis 28 and verse 15, God says to Jacob, And behold, I am with you, and I will keep you in all places where you go. And I will bring you again into this land, for I will not leave you until I have done that which I have spoken to you of. And Jacob awaked out of his sleep, so he had this vision while he was sleeping, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't realize it. And he was afraid. And he said, How dreadful is this place? This is none other but the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob had this experience where he experienced God's presence with him. And now if you continue just four chapters later in verse 32. Oh, sorry, chapter 32. Chapter 32 and verse 24. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. So, so there was this man that came into Jacob's life. And, and through the night, Jacob was wrestling with this man. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, that is, that this man was not able to overcome Jacob, he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was put out of joint as he wrestled him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. And Jacob said, I will not let you go, except you bless me. And he said unto him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name, this is God speaking, Your name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince have you power with God and with men, and you have prevailed. So God was impressed with Jacob's tenacity. And changed his name because of this experience to Israel. And Jacob asked him and said, tell me, I beg you, your name. What's your name? And he said, why is it that you ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the place, the name of the place, Peniel, meaning face of God. So he wrestled this man. He saw God face to face. And he called this place the face of God. I think if God actually said what his name was, he probably would have called it that. 
but he didn't, he didn't, God didn't tell him the name, but he said, I saw God face to face. So he named the place Face of God. For I have seen God, I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. So we see this God happy to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve, happy to have a meal with his friend Abraham, happy to engage Jacob and bless him personally. And then if we look at Exodus Exodus 24, Exodus 24 and verse 9. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. So here the 70 elders, along with Moses and Aaron and and Nadab and Abihu, they saw God. Again, God is happy to come into his creation, this God. Chapter 40 of the same book, Exodus. Exodus 40 and verse 33. This is when Moses now has completed building the tabernacle, according to the instructions that he was given. And he reared up the court round about the tabernacle and the altar and set up the hanging of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. The tabernacle is now done. Verse 34. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In other words, God moved in. God was now Israel's neighbor. He moved into the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Immediately on the heels of the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle is the book of Leviticus, which is all about instruction in holiness. That if God is your neighbor, if God lives next door, how do you, how do you live with him? What happens when you sin? And God is your neighbor. Well, the whole book of Leviticus is about purification and holiness and holy living so that you can dwell with the God of Israel. So, why this stark difference between the God of false religions and the God of Israel? Again, Satan sees himself as so great and so high And he used Nimrod as his proxy. So Nimrod was this mighty hunter, this person like nobody else. And they were to build a tower and put Nimrod at the top. And he is the proxy for Satan. He is the most high. God doesn't behave this way. God is happy to condescend because man is made in his image. Man is made in his likeness. He's happy to call Abraham his friend. He's happy to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. He's happy to talk to Moses face to face and to write the commandments with his own finger and commune with man. And we could go on and on. We could talk about Ezekiel and his experience with God coming 
to, to see him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were side by side with God in the fire. So, with all of this experience then, of God happy to come into his creation, happy to come into the earth, he doesn't despise the earth. Why so much confusion about Jesus Christ being God? Why is it so difficult for people to accept that Jesus Christ is the creator of all things and that he personally came into the earth? There's lots of evidence here that this is not a new concept. God is happy to come into the earth. So why so much confusion? Let's go now to the New Testament and look at John 10. Why so much confusion around the identity of Jesus as God? John 10 and verse 24. I mean, the Jews were really anxious to figure this out. They were, in fact, annoyed with Christ. And in verse 24, they then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long do you make us to doubt? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Tell us plainly. Are you the Messiah? So, so there, there was a question. He, he was here on earth, and he was performing all of these miracles. And the Jews were beginning to wonder, who is this man? Could he be the Messiah? So they just went to him and said, tell us plainly. Now, why didn't Christ tell them plainly? Look at Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and look at verse 41. So Christ is now healing, he's casting out devils, and in verse 41, the devils also came out of many, so he relieved a lot of people of demon possession, crying out and saying, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. They declared this, they proclaimed it. So he gets the devils out of these people, And the devils say, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And what does he do in Luke 4.41? And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Messiah. So Christ, these spirit beings, these demons, they knew who he was. And they were were declaring who he was, and he forbade them. He forbade them. Look again in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. And verse 34. Again, Christ is healing and and, uh, casting out demons. And in verse 34, uh, Mark writes that Christ healed many that were sick of various diseases. And he cast out many devils. So a lot of devils were inhabiting people. And he cast out many. But he did not allow the devils to speak because they knew him. They knew, they knew who he was. They knew him as the creator. And they understood that he had now come into his creation. But he forbade them from speaking. 
Look now at Matthew 12. Again, we're trying to answer the question here. Why don't people understand? Why isn't it crystal clear that the Creator has come into earth? And what we're seeing here is God himself prevented it from being known. Matthew 12 and verse 14. The Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. So they had an agenda. We need to kill this guy. We need to destroy him. We hate what he's doing. We hate him. He's jeopardizing our position. We must destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from there. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. So everybody who came to him, with whatever disease they had, he just healed them. Notice verse 16. And charged them that they should not make him known. So so we're seeing here that the confusion around Christ's identity actually comes from Christ. He did not want it known who he was. He forbade the devils to disclose who he was. And all these people that he healed, so he separates himself from the Pharisees who wanted to kill him, but then all these people who followed him, he healed them all, and then he, he commanded them not to tell who he was. Why? Verse 17, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, and then he quotes Isaiah, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive, nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break. A smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. So just side note, even from here, the inclusion of the Gentiles, the blessing of the whole world, is made clear by Isaiah. But what Christ is showing here is that his identity mustn't be known, because he has to be the perfect Passover sacrifice. And so he doesn't want the Pharisees tipped off to who he is they just have to see him just as a man and they have to figure out for themselves who he is and he doesn't want in any way to jeopardize the fulfillment of the isianic prophecy let's go back now to matthew 8 where we see an interesting passage with christ interacting with his disciples so so we've seen so far just him with the masses and with the pharisees and he doesn't want his identity known But let's look now at his interaction with his disciples. These are the ones he's training. He's chosen these, and he's training them. And in Matthew 8 and verse 23, it shows that he entered into a ship, and his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm in the sea. I don't know if anybody's actually been to sea. Uh, You have. Oh, yeah, you have a boat. Um, I, I, we, had, uh, we went on a cruise. And, you know, cruise is nice. It's, you know, they, they make it nice, lots of food and all that. Personally, I don't like it. I, I felt quite vulnerable being in the middle of the ocean. 
And we actually did experience a storm while we were out there. And a lot of people were throwing up and sick. But you can't get to land. It's like we're two days away from land. And there's a sense of vulnerability. And you can imagine here with these fishermen when they're out in the sea. And and they're in the middle of a storm and they can't get to land. How vulnerable they are. So there arose this great storm in the sea. Insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves. In other words, they were letting in water. So you're in the middle of the sea, you're letting in water. If this boat, if it's, if the ship sinks, you can't get to land. In so much that the ship was covered with the waves, but Christ was asleep. And his disciples came to him and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. Like, this is it. We're going to lose our lives here. Wake up, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you fearful? In other words, he, ex- he had an expectation of them. And it's fine that they woke him up, but it wasn't fine that they were fearful. They should have figured out by now who he was. And so there was no reason for them to come in terror and panic. He's like, okay, yeah, wake me up, but why are you fearful? Oh, you of little faith. They should have figured it out by now. Then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. (laughs) But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? And, And that is a very legitimate question. Who is this man that when we wake him up, he just commands the wind and he commands the sea and everything is calm? The exact opposite situation of the situation we were in where we thought we were all going to perish. And he, he rebukes them for being of little faith. Mark here is hearkening back to the psalm that Dylan read in the opening scripture, Psalm 107. Let's turn to Psalm 107. What manner of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? This is the question. In Psalm 107, you'll remember when uh, Dylan read it, Oh, that men should praise their God, for his mercy endures forever. Psalm 107 and verse 23 speaks specifically Verse 23, of they that go down to the sea in ships, that do business in great waters. They're in the middle of the ocean, middle of the sea. This is how they're fishermen. These see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind. So they're in the middle of nowhere and suddenly they're in a storm. He's the one that commands the storm, which lifts up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heaven. They go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of the trouble. Master, we perish. They reel to and fro and stagger like drunken men. They can't walk straight because the ship is just reeling and turning and and, and they look like drunk men. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man. 
and are at their wit's end. Then they cry unto who? They cry unto the Lord in their trouble. Master, we perish. Wake up. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He makes the storm a calm so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad because the waves are quiet. So he brings them unto their desired haven. Oh, that men would praise who? The Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. What manner of man is this? That even the wind and sea obey him? The psalmist answers, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. Look now at Mark chapter 8. Again, dealing with his disciples. Not allowing the demons, the devils, to say who he is. Forbidding them to speak. So they, they want to declare who he is, but they can't. They're forbidden. Healing the multitudes, forbidding them to say who he is. And the whole time doing these miracles with the disciples present. And the disciples are watching all of this, but he's not telling them who he is. He does rebuke them for having little faith, but he doesn't say explicitly who he is. So now in Mark chapter 8 and verse 27... We see the parallel account of this in Matthew 16. But here in Mark, Mark writes, And Jesus went out, again with his disciples, into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And along the way, he asked his disciples. So he's wondering, have they, he's just going to have a conversation with them now. He asked his disciples, saying unto them, Who do men say that I am? So, you know, you've been interacting with people. What's the scuttlebutt? I've been doing all these miracles, and I'm certainly unique. So who are men saying that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. Okay, so that's, that's what they're saying. He says to them, who do you say that I am? Have you figured it out yet? So who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. We have figured this out. No doubt about it. You're the Messiah. And notice verse 30. He charged them that they should tell no man of him. So the, disciples, the, the devils knew right away. He charges them not to tell anybody. He's healing the multitudes. He charges them not to tell anybody. He wants to know who, who do people say that he is. They're, they're, they're saying he's this, he's that. Goes, okay, well, who do you guys think I am? You're the Messiah. Don't tell anybody. So this confusion around Christ's identity, Christ, in a sense, initiated it. He didn't want them to know who he is. So now the disciples have figured it out, and he charges them that they should tell no man of him. Why? Well, you know, we saw earlier, he quotes Isaiah, that he has to be the perfect sacrifice. He has to be the perfect Passover sacrifice. So that's why he didn't want his identity known. 
because the Pharisees have to cause him to be put to death. And he doesn't want that prophecy unfulfilled. So don't tell them. Let, let, let everything run its course. And now in the same way, when the disciples figure it out, then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So in no way did he want to jeopardize this process. And if his identity was known prematurely, it might have jeopardized the process. So he comes into his creation as a man and does not speak a word of who he is. But the disciples finally figure it out. Does he ever say plainly who he is? Look at Mark 14. Mark 14. Only when all the prophecies are fulfilled and there's no risk of unfulfilled prophecy, only then does he disclose his identity. Mark 14 and verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it which these witness against you? But he held his peace. Again, that's part of the prophecy. He held his peace. The whole time he said nothing and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him and said, Are you the Messiah? The Son of the Blessed. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? The pivotal verse is verse 62. He said, I am. He finally discloses his identity. Now that he's up on the cross, he'll tell them who he is. Now that they're committed to crucifying him, he'll tell them who he is. I am. In the Greek, ego emi. In the Hebrew, we would say, Yahweh, I am. I am. Then, to really reinforce his identity, he doesn't just leave it there to say, I am. He says, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. <laughs> they knew exactly what he was saying. They didn't just say, I am. He said, I'm going to be seated on the right hand of power. I'm the Son of Man. And I'm going to come with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What need we any further witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. So now the prophecy will be fulfilled. But Christ made it very plain who he was. By saying, I'm the son of man. So first of all, saying, I am. And then saying, I'm the son of man. And then saying, I'm going to be seated on the right hand of power. And then saying, I'm going to return with the clouds. He's quoting Daniel 7. Let's go to Daniel 7. So they, that's why they, the priest tore his clothes. <laughs> who do you think you are? Well, you asked me who I am. You asked me, am I the son of the blessed? Am I the Messiah? I am. And then he quoted Daniel 7. Daniel 7 and verse 9. 
Daniel got this, received this vision, and he said, I saw, I beheld, till the thrones were cast down. So all these um, pagan kingdoms are finally thrown down. And the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth before him, from before him. Thousand thousands ministered to him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. So this is God. Clearly God is the Ancient of Days. And the judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld, so he goes on to talk about this beast power being destroyed. But then if you look at verse 12, I, as concerning the rest of the beasts, so beasts again are Gentile kingdoms that subjugate Israel. When Israel should be the nation that is over all nations, as the nation of priests, facilitating the relationship of, of mankind with God, beast nations, under the influence of the devil, subjugate Israel and try to destroy Israel. So they are usurping the authority of God. So I saw here that the rest of the beasts had their dominion taken away, rightfully so. Yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, so we've seen the Ancient of Days, and now Daniel is seeing somebody else, one like the Son of Man. So Christ said, I'm the Son of Man in Daniel. He came with the clouds of heaven. That's why Christ said, and you'll see me seated on the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days. So there's two different beings here. There's the Ancient of Days, and there's one like the Son of Man who comes to the Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him. And there was given to this one like the Son of Man. The Ancient of Days gave to the Son of Man dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve this one like the Son of Man. His dominion, unlike the other dominions, the dominions of the Gentile powers, which are all temporary. One conquers another, conquers another. They all hate Israel. But eventually, the Redeemer of Israel is coming to restore the kingdom to Israel. And his kingdom is a dominion. It's an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. And this is what freaked out the high priest that Jesus Christ put himself right in the middle of this prophecy to say, I am, in fact, this son of man, and all the kingdoms are coming to me, and my kingdom will be an everlasting dominion. Let's go back now to John 10, where we saw the Jews ask Christ, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? And let's just go further down in the chapter to see the exchange that Christ had with the Jews. So, Daniel we see, there's the Ancient of Days, 
And then there's this other being called the Son of Man who comes to the Ancient of Days and receives an everlasting kingdom. And all power is given to this Son of Man. In John 10 and verse 30, Christ says to the Jews, I and my Father are one. We are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered, Many good works I've shown you from my Father. For which of these do you stone me? The Jews answered, saying, For a good work we stone you not, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. Isn't, isn't it in your scripture? Doesn't the scripture say that you're gods? So he brings this scripture to their attention, and this then says, If he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture can't be broken, say you of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, you blaspheme, because I say I'm the Son of God? So Christ made it very plain. I am the Son of God. So there was a time when he made it known and made it plain. Initially he hid it, and then he made it plain. And they wanted to destroy him for that. He's quoting Psalm 82. Let's go to Psalm 82. Psalm 82, speaking of Israel, not of people in general, but of Israel. Psalm 82 and verse 6. I have said, you are gods. You are gods. And all of you are children of the Most High. So all of Israel are children of the Most High. And all of Israel are gods. But, verse 7, you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. So this is kind of a riddle here. You're all gods, but you're all going to die like men. And what Christ does is he leads the way. Christ is obedient Israel. And he dies like a man, but then he's born from the grave. And all Israel is to follow this process. All Israel is to die like men and then be born again. 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, verse 49, as we have borne the image of the earthy, that is Adam, we, that is Israel, shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. It's because of this scripture that we can understand now, Psalm 82. The scripture says you are God's but you shall die like men. But it's in that second birth that you will become gods if you are obedient, if you uh, uh, submit yourselves to the covenant process. So yes, 
uh, Christ challenges them and says, think about this. You're all children of the Most High. You're all gods. Are you going to stone me because I say I'm the Son of God when the Scripture says that? Okay. So what we've seen then is we've seen that, unlike false religion, the Bible shows us that God loves matter. Matter is not evil to God. In fact, he says it's very good. It's so good that he's happy to make man in his image out of the earth. Not only that, he's happy to come into the earth and participate with man and befriend man in the earth. And yet people still have a struggle and trouble accepting Jesus Christ as God. How could God come into the earth? Well, and, and we see now that Christ actually enabled that because he had to fulfill the prophecies. And it wasn't until they were committed to crucifying him and he could fulfill all the prophecies that he then disclosed his identity. Now, why this matters? Here's, here's what false religion misses and what false religion cannot explain. The earth doesn't sit by itself. The earth is part of the universe. The universe is matter. And the earth is just part of this creation. Scientists today estimate that the Milky Way, our galaxy, has a hundred billion stars in it. Each star is a sun with its own planets. That's one galaxy, our galaxy. They further estimate that the Milky Way is one of a hundred billion galaxies. That's their estimation of the size of the universe. A hundred billion stars in the Milky Way and a hundred billion Milky Ways. Each one has different names. And it's expanding. It's getting bigger. And no false religion can explain this. But the Bible explains it. As we, as we move to conclusion, let's go back to Job 38. Job 38 and verse 4, God asks Job, who really, you know, saw himself as, as truly righteous and started to question God. Here God questions Job, verse 34. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Mankind was not present. When the earth was created, man did not exist. And Job, therefore, cannot answer this question. He was absent. All of us were absent. Adam was absent. And yet God created the earth and the foundations of the earth. Declare, if you have understanding. Who has laid the measures thereof, if you know, or who has stretched the line upon it? Whereupon the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? Verse 7. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So when the universe was created, when matter was created, these spirit beings rejoiced 
they couldn't believe it. They were so thrilled to see the creation of matter. And we somehow think that matter depends on our physical existence. When the scripture shows us in 2 Peter 3, 2 Peter 3 and verse 11, or verse 10, that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in, in the which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Everything that we know today that is made of matter out of the earth, all of it, including human beings, all of it will be burned. And the earth will remain. And the earth will be purified for what we see in Revelation 21. Revelation 21. The earth now, when, all, when everything is burned, no human beings will exist. You're either a spirit being or you're ashes. So now we have God the Father and Jesus Christ and all of the children that Christ has led into the family of God. And in verse 3 of chapter 21 of Revelation, John writes, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, is with men. God has moved in. God has moved his throne to the earth. And he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. So we see at the end of everything, the earth being burned up. And the creator, the father himself, the Christ and the father dwelling on earth. Making Jerusalem their home. So whether God is where he is now or on the earth, the fact of the matter is he has created this physical universe for our enjoyment. The family of God is going to enjoy matter. Matter wasn't created for human beings. This, this human existence is a temporary existence. It's a process for us to come into spiritual existence. And like the angels, when the universe was created, they shouted for joy. When we are born into the God family, as spirit beings, as the children of God, we are going to rejoice at the possibilities of matter. The same way that the God of the universe came down to earth and fashioned a man out of matter and then breathed into him. And he came to life. This is the kind of, this is the kind of uh, ability that, spirit, that God can have with matter. And so this despising of the earth, it comes from Satan. This desire to leave the earth and, and be in heaven, it comes from Satan. 
this inaccessibility of God to man comes from Satan. The Bible shows us a God who thinks so highly of man, first of all, who thinks so highly of the earth, that he fashions an image of himself out of it, who thinks so highly of man, he's willing to come into the earth to commune with him, who thinks so highly of man, he's willing to be tortured and crucified in order to enable man to be born into his family. And then let's conclude now in Romans 8. I just think this is remarkable that the God of Israel is not a concept. He's not an essence. He's not so other that he's inaccessible. The God of Israel is willing to call us his friends. That when he was on earth, he had friends. That he had a meal with Abraham and called Abraham his friend. There's an intimacy that God wants with us. And we have to prevent these false notions of getting into our head that God is not accessible. Romans 8 and verse 16. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We're in this process of giving up this physical body and receiving a spiritual body, and being born into God's family. And the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. And look what the scripture says. Joint heirs with Christ. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are joint heirs with Christ. Christ created all things out of matter. And everything that he created was created for himself. And the scripture is telling us now that we are joint heirs with Christ. In other words, those 100 billion galaxies with 100 billion stars, with numerous innumerable planets orbiting those stars, all of that matter... That's what Christ has inherited. And the scripture is telling us that the spirit is telling us that we are joint heirs with all of this, beginning with the earth. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Scripture says you are God's. For the earnest expectation of the creation, the whole creation, waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. The whole creation is waiting for the, for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creation was made subject to vanity. No matter how much they search, they can't find life anywhere. It was made subject to vanity, not willingly. But by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So matter is going to be uh, liberated. When, when When the family of God 
now can, can get on with it, then all this matter is going to be glorified. It's, going to, its potential is going to be realized. For we know that the whole creation, the whole universe, groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. So, brethren, this universe, yes, it's, there is, there is a vanity. It's hard to explain it. It seems useless. It's just out there. But no false religion can explain it. Every false religion has us despising the earth, and leaving the earth and going into some spiritual heaven with no explanation for the universe. And what the scripture shows us is that God has a plan, and we're very much a part of that plan, and it's a plan for Israel. And we have been grafted into Israel, and Israel are are the sons of God. And we are going to be born into this family, and we're going to inherit the earth, and from the earth inherit the whole universe. So I I conclude with the question, would you settle for Earth? This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.